Hi, this is Jay Koplowitz, producer of Lowdown on Low Code. Here to kick things off are your hosts, Rob Koplowitz and Ryan Dugid. <laughs> Hi, thanks everyone for joining today. This is episode two of Lowdown on Low Code. I'm your host, Rob Koplowitz, and I'm here with our co-host, Ryan Dugid. Great to be here today, Rob, and excited to introduce our guest on episode two, uh, Burley Kawasaki. Burley comes to us with uh, over 25 years in product management, product design, engineering, consulting. Uh, more interestingly, I think, than all of that is he's taken all of his knowledge and he's culminated into a book called The No-Code Playbook. It's a, a definitive guide to being successful with low code. Uh, with that, I'd like to introduce Burley. And Burley, tell us a bit about your background and what, what brought you to the world of low code. More importantly, what's made you stay there all these years? <laughs> I must be a little crazy, I think, to have <laughs> stayed there that long. I was I was listening to your first podcast and, you know, John took credit for coining the term. I, I can't claim credit for coining the term, but I was using sort of different types of low code technologies all the way back to 2000, which is where I started becoming a user of a little-known product in Microsoft called BizTalk Server that launched in 2000, and it actually what brought me to Microsoft, and that sort of set my career on path from there, and I worked for a number of vendors uh, that were using no-code or low-code uh, approaches as part of their development, uh, everything from uh, no-code mobile development or low-code mobile development, uh, no-code or low-code workflow. So I've been around the space, and as you uh, astutely pointed out, surprisingly, I still remain excited. Um, I think it's because, in fact, there has been a lot of progression, and I think that's one of the things we'll talk about, which is, I think, the emergence of business developers in a whole new range of personas who are now empowered and able to build applications, I think is a relatively recent breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, this this is something that is is certainly not new, certainly, you know, given the wrinkles of the faces on the screen in front of you. Burley, you and I go back to BizTalk server days when I was working on Duet at Microsoft and Ryan, you and I go back to SharePoint and, you know, all these things are now converging and we have these things like, like no code, which, you know, Burley, that's a toy, right? You can't build an application with no code, can you? <laughs> Not a real application. If it is a toy, yeah, if it is a toy, then I've uh, wasted the last year or so of my life <laughs> writing about no code. Uh, I would say this. I think like a lot of technology advances, uh, when you first see it, it looks primitive. It does look toyish. I think about every, you know, the first iPhone or the first of every new technology advance, it, it has less capability than what preceded it. Uh, and certainly no code had less functionality, less capability when it first emerged. But you know, I think a lot of progression has, has occurred, and I think you'd be surprised what I see customers using no-code tools to build. So I don't think that's really true anymore. Can you give us some examples, Burley? What so, are, what are, where where are front people stretching those limits? Well, I, I think what you're seeing is that, you know, no-code uh, is, is really uh, well-suited when you're, you're trying to very sort of rapidly ideate on a new uh, types of applications, just because it, it does permit, I think, the business to more directly take, it, it, you know, it, uh, advantage of the technology and to be able to to build very rapidly, uh, even more rapid in some cases than sort of low code, which still has, I think, a bit wider complexity and breadth of their tool sets. And so, I see no code being used a lot for very rapid introduction of new capabilities. And you saw this during COVID or, you know, people just needed to stand up very quickly, simple applications perhaps at first, but increasingly more and more rich over time. But but speed and time to market was 
was utmost paramount in those cases. And, and no code facilitated that because you didn't have to wait for a developer to free up. <laughs> you could just take these tools and the business itself could start to, to ideate and to build, uh, you know, when they had the idea and they ran with it. So on, on that front, Burley, obviously the, the kind of debate in the industry and every vendor has got their spin on this, right? Low code and no code. How would you distinguish between the two? Going back to our question from episode one, right? No right. code, is there really such a thing? Is an Excel formula code? <laughs> and and maybe perhaps give us a couple of examples of vendors you'd put in a, well, this is low code. Here's why, here's who it's for. And this is no code. Here's why and here's who it's for. Yeah. It, you're right that they sort of are blurred. In fact, you know, when you read articles or blogs, a lot of times people just concatenate it together. It's LCNC, low code, no code, as if it were a single concept. Um, and I, I think for me, it's it's less about, oh, I can name out the features or capabilities that separate one from the other, but it has more to do with who's using it and the persona, right? I think that the dividing line for me is that low code does require some technical expertise. It typically, but not always, has someone who has come from a development background, but with lesser than a professional developer. Um, and, and so that sort of sets a set of usability requirements that is different and distinct from a business developer who has not gone through formal training, sits inside the business unit, you know, is, is approaching this with, they're trying to solve a problem. <laughs> they're, they're just trying to meet some need and they don't have training in Agile or DevOps or other, you know, methodologies. And so it's more about the personas and sort of where they sit in the organization. Um, I think then, you know, there's this continuum of, of course where no code apps can reach a point, and we'll probably talk about this later, where they become more sophisticated and you need to include some extensions or code into them, and, and vice versa. Some of the low-code tools are simple enough that perhaps even business people could take advantage of using them. So there is some overlap, but, but if you try to keep it clean, I think it's more the personas, one in the business, focusing on true sort of business development versus someone who comes out of a developer background. You going to name names? Oh, that's right. <laughs> Name names. I mean, I think, you know, the, the low code players are pretty clear, right? I mean, that is a more mature and established market. I mean, between, you know, Microsoft, Salesforce, you know, OutSystems, Mendex. I mean, they, they do have very mature offerings at this point, And I think they have the ability to switch between sort of low code and, and pro code pretty readily available, right? And you can, you can mix and blend them as you need to sort of extend or, or address more uh, sophisticated requirements. I think on the no-code side, what you're seeing is that it's more diverse. There, <laughs> there's a converging set of players, but they come from different entrant points. Um, some are coming from, you know, a number of us spent time in the workflow <laughs> or, you know, business process management space. So there's a set of workflow vendors that have the ability to do no-code development or workflow. There are no-code vendors that come more from like websites, web design. Think about Wix or Bubble or others. And there's no-code vendors that come out of sort of, you know, uh, project management or work collaborative workforce management like Asana or, you know, Airsheet, Airtable, et cetera. So, um, you know, they, they come from different vectors, but it's, again, more about who's using them. In the latter ones that I rattled off, the predominant users that are building apps are sitting more often than not inside the business or in functional teams versus people that are coming from a trained sort of developer background. So let me so throw out four names. Interesting. Oh, hey, Ryan, let me, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I want to, I want to play a little game here that involves both of you. I want to throw out four <laughs> names. 
One, two, three. Nintex, <laughs> K2, Coney, Quickbase. And maybe you could remind the audience why these four names are relevant to the two of you. I don't think they have any contracts in place that, that would be talking about <laughs> I, don't, that. I don't think they're going to cancel oh. your contract oh. if you classify them as no, co no code or low that's, code. That's, <laughs> it's not a provocative yeah, question. Yeah, I'll... I'll I'll give you. We can have some fun because for 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 the audience, right? So I'm I'm the the Nintex and the Quickbase guy. Burley, he's the Coney oh, and the K2 guy. Yeah. And and for anyone paying attention, there's a, a tight relationship between Nintex and K2 now. And uh, so I'll give you my my two plus the crossover, and and Burley can do the same. So uh, so my two. So Nintex, I would say, is is in the. It's firmly in the middle. And Rob, to your point in episode one, uh, like we never perfectly finished the job, right? Saying, well, it, you, you need to understand what a variable is more than likely, have some concept of that. You need to probably from time to time deal with a, a formula or a function, usually things like manipulating dates and times and you know, some weird edge cases there that weren't easy for us to handle out of the box. More no code than it is low code, although I would say for sure. Um, QuickBase almost straddling the exact same point. Now, interesting point Burley just made before coming at things from different perspectives. Nintex came squarely from the process space, the type of person that wakes up in the morning and says, I've got a process problem. This process is broken. We need to improve this process. And they're thinking flowchart, they're thinking swim lanes, BPMN diagrams, potentially, right? On the QuickBase side is a set of people who are saying, I've got a data problem. I need to capture this data. I need to analyze this data. I need to report on this data. And both platforms will then try to approximate what the other platform is doing. Right? Nintex, we would say, well, your data is probably going to be in a SharePoint list, in Salesforce, in SAP, in some other line of business system. And QuickBase, you're going to be putting a bunch of logic into the UI tier, buttons and drop down lists and trying to change up views based on who's where and what data they're interacting with. But both more on the no code side, for sure. K2 is in my mind, absolutely on the low code no side uh, and, and exceptional at it. There's a reason we wanted to bring those capabilities together at Nintex, right? And with that, hand over to Burley. <laughs> yeah, my, mine are easier. Uh, both K2 and Kony, in my mind, are, are squarely low code, right? The, I think the scenarios that we optimized for were really powerful in the hands of someone who came from a somewhat development background and knew how to build build applications. Um, yet there's always some scripting, right? Even if it was just sort of light scripting that was needed in order to really make the you know the application sing. So I, I would consider them both low code. No code was sort of uh, a journey we were on. And I think to get there, though, we would have likely, and we were sort of looking at creating a separate sort of bespoke design experience, really optimized for someone in the business, right? Trimming out a lot of the complexity and features so that a business developer didn't need to know all the concepts uh, in order to build build their app. So, so let, Rob, me, let me throw out a no, question. No, turn it, turn it back on. Well, we've got to turn it back on the analyst now, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so Forrester. Yeah, Forrester, there was a period of time where it was all just one big old thing, local right. application platforms, right? And um, and there was DPA and what have you. And so from your perspective, like how how did you think about this? If we go back to the early days with John and you evolved through DPA and the likes, 
Like how, how do you see the difference and why did Forrester view it one way or the other over time? Well, I mean, we've, we've discussed this uh, a lot between ourselves and, and certainly, you know, John Reimer and I spent a great deal of time on this. Um, so it started off, if I could just sort of think of the evaluative research, like the waves, everybody wants to think about it in terms of waves, right? We started off with a BPM wave that Clay Richardson, you know, did for many years really, really well. Clay was really the one that kind of got me thinking when I took over that coverage area that something has changed here that's pretty dramatic. And, and hence my decision to change the name to digital process automation. I didn't want to be a BPM analyst. Come on, who nobody wanted to be a BPM analyst at that point. But Reimer <laughs> and I always worked together. Reimer and I always did our, did our research side by side. And what we discovered at one point was I was doing two, DPA wide and DPA deep, right? And, and Ryan, this to your point, one of your questions was, why is Nintex in the same wave as Pega? They don't do the same thing. <laughs> it was a little harder to figure out which wave K2 belonged in. We ended up bringing them into the one wide. So the first distinction we said was, is it, is it designed to build a lot of applications, including potentially sophisticated applications, but build a lot of applications and certainly open the aperture to more business user participation, even if we're not setting up a business developer program? So that was the distinction we took in DPA, but then John co-authored the waves with me because we had to get the perspective on what is it as a low code or no code platform? How do we evaluate that? And then I started co-authoring his low code waves with him because we realized these guys need to build process in, or ultimately they're going to be disintermediated out of the market. So to me, I mean, you know, if I was writing research on this today, I would predict Low code becomes sort of the main moniker. There's a flavor of low code that is more for business developers that we could call no code. And that with the exception of the IBMs and maybe the Pegas and the Appians, probably not even Appian, we see DPA getting absorbed into the low code market. That that would be sort of my 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 take on where all this is going. You know, the, the, the vendor in me, to me, the, that sounds like the Excel spreadsheet that the analyst firm's going to send me is going to get even bigger and bigger and bigger to cover all the questions from all the categories. <laughs> right, because the wave should take even longer to execute. <laughs> Burley, you had a question. You had a, you had a comment about the potential, and I don't know whether this was with, whether this was with K2, of separate IDEs for the business and the professional developer. Mm -hmm. Is that a path we can go mm -hmm. down? I know Mendix tried to go down that path. Microsoft, we could argue, is sort of kind of. Is that something we look for? And is it even possible? I I think it's possible and I personal bias, but I, I think it's essential, right? Because I I think over time you end up trying to make this, you know, master of everything type of design tooling environment that you know optimizes around both completeness of features and extensibility and all the options that a low code platform needs for a pro dev. And then at the same time, you want something that is super simple and easy for, you know, a business developer to pick up the first time and not have to go through a ton of, you know, training just to learn how to operate the IDE. And so I do think, I do think it, it requires somewhat of a different um, you know, personalization, at least maybe it's not a separate tool, but is there a personalization of the design experience that removes or trims a lot of the complexity away so that the business developer can focus on, Hey, I'm just trying to solve a problem. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, Burley on the K2 side, you were, and you mentioned it, right. You were 
hey, we're low code, but we feel this pressure every day to get easier and easier and more and more consumable by a different set of constituents that are emerging in the market. And at the exact same time, in parallel, we're over at Nintex um, saying, hey, how do we create a, a like we're sort of where, where you were gravitating towards. And we we're actually starting to look to the side of us and say, there's a set of people that can describe their process, that can <laughs> write down their requirements, right. but find it hard to configure a workflow, right? Easy to drag and drop a flowchart. And anybody can do that, frankly. I was taught how to do it with stencils and graph paper in high school, right? Mm-hmm. But configuring it to talk to myriad SaaS platforms and the likes more complex. And we, we had this genius, I think, on a self-proclaimed genius idea that was like Google Earth, right? But for a process. And we always, the, the holy grail would have been you type up some stuff and then you zoom in a, a level of resolution and you maybe see the diagram and maybe the big stages in the process. And then you zoom in a little more and you see more detail. And then you zoom in and you see the implementation detail. And, and we actually, we acquired a company called ProMap in Auckland, New Zealand to try to straddle that world, right? And so now you see this continuum that not only is it, you know, from like there's the pro dev on the one side up to these people that can do low no code things, but also trying to bring the business in more. And I know in your book, you talk a little bit about the concept of fusion teams, right? That's a, right. A, a, an idea that's being bounced around there. Now, you maybe give, yep. give the audience a bit of insight into what makes up a fusion team and how they can be successful working together on applications. Yeah, it, it's one of the things we, we thought a lot about. Is, so uh, we sort of alluded to it, but I, I wrote a book called The No-Code Playbook, and I co-authored it with um, Catherine Casanova of Creatio. And we, we we wanted to write something that would be focused on the the, the business developer, right? There, there's plenty of, of books out there, resources, if you're a developer to pick up low code, or you can go directly to the vendor and pick up, you know, low code, um, you know, books, uh, training, et cetera. But what we, we realized was there was no sort of vendor agnostic primer that was meant to be understood and easily consumed by by the business, right? If you've never gone through any computer science training or any technical development training whatsoever, yet you were starting down your journey of wanting to build a, a no-code app. And so that's what the uh, no-code playbook, I have one here if you <laughs> happen to see it, it's uh, it's meant to be more of a coffee table book. And we tried to introduce things simply, not assuming that you had any particular background. That said, we also wanted to recognize that over time, especially in the enterprise, your needs get more and more complex, right? You may start doing sort of relatively simple apps, but as your needs grow more complex, the way you you organize the, the processes you use, your methodology, um, considerations around how you structure the app, those should probably get more sophisticated as well to match sort of the complexity of the process or the complexity of the application. And so that led us to try to introduce basically a, a mechanism to either scale up or scale down some of the concepts um, so that we didn't overburden your your team with too much complexity or governance or process out of the gates because a lot of people on their first simple app they would just give up and you know run for the hills because it was too hard too complex um, at the same time we didn't want to make it seem like it was too simple and not give any of the uh, sort of methodology guidance that you would need when you got into more complex requirements and scenarios so we we create this thing called an application matrix which essentially sounds Sounds, you know, 
very exotic, sounds, you know, straight out of sci-fi. But what it is, is basically a scoring tool and a set of question areas that allow you to grade how much complexity do you, do you need and is warranted for this application. And we looked at sort of three dimensions, you know, business complexity, how complex is the process, governance complexity, is this a you know, regulated industry, or are there other specific regulations that may uh, be applicable? And then technology complexity, you know, are you having to integrate with systems and get access to data or things that may require more expertise of certain types of technologies or domains? And so it's a sliding scale, right? As you sort of move up, you know, to more complexity than the business or the governance or the technology spectrum, you probably need to be prompted to use more sophisticated um, you know, sort of processes for how you build it to ensure that you're building it, you know, in a, in a secure, manageable, scalable way, and also that you're pulling in the right help. So Ryan talked about fusion teams. When you get to a point where the technology, you know, sort of sliding scale moves to the right and you need someone who can, you know, help you integrate with backend systems or that help you, you know, do some type of uh, component in the in the application that is probably not a standard component out of the box of your your no code tool set. That's when you should invite someone who has a professional development background, someone perhaps in IT or they, they could be elsewhere in the organization. But when you start pulling in a cross disciplinary team of both business and professional developers, we refer to that as a fusion team, right? And the team works together. Sometimes they're reporting into different orgs, but you want to have them collaborate and work in concert to build the application. In other cases, uh, you may, because of process complexity or, or reuse, you may want to pull in members if, if a COE, Center of Excellence, exists, right? Because they are better at being able to help you, you know, appropriately design the application so that it can be easily reused or extended over time, right? Because it may be used in the future by multiple groups or multiple business areas. And so, those those are all things that we we sort of you know think about as your application scenarios get more complex. You need a mechanism for turning the dial up, so to speak, on and complexity. And the application matrix was was the way you do that, and it's all sort of outlined in the book. So I won't go through well, a ton of depth, but you're you know. And, and, yeah, and the workshop as well, Burley. I, I kind of want to have you a chance to to pitch. You know, the, the workshop. I started off with sort of a where as we're winding down here. I started off with kind of a. A snarky, provocative comment that said, "You know, you know, no code's not for real <laughs> apps." You know, where my heart lies is that you know, and what has sort of always been my passion around this is, we will enter an era of the business developer. That if we don't enter an era of the business developer, we are absolutely not going to have the resources and insight to get to the full long tail of digital transformation. Right to get to a true a true digital company, we have to actually digitize our assets and digitize our processes as the business needs to be in, involved in that. Um, you know, and, and I know that's really, really hard. Um, Burley, could you give us just a sense of, of, you know, you know, without sort of spilling too much of the contents of the book or, or, or the workshop, what, what are the things yeah. people need to be thinking about in order to be prepared for that happening in the next few years? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And let me just use a quick analogy. Um, it, you know, people think about agile as if it's been around forever, and everyone's always been, you know, conversant in agile. But you know, agile started, you know, two thousand one ish around there, um, and and it got adopted a lot by sort of small, nimble, you know, startups and high tech teams. But people forget that it took a good decade for agile to really be embraced and adopted by the enterprise. 
and, and it wasn't even necessarily that, you know, the, you know, tools didn't exist to, to, to do or execute agile. It was more that there was a void in terms of guidance, best practices, training, right, that supported the use of these tools. And if you're in an agile in enterprise, you've probably heard of this thing called the scaled agile framework or safe, right? And safe, as an example, is what sort of hardened and made it robust enough for the enterprise to say, I, I can predictably build applications using Agile. It's not just for toy little, you know, three-person teams in a in a garage somewhere, but I can use it at scale with large numbers of simultaneous projects and for some of the most demanding apps. And and Safe has evolved over a decade plus to to add a, a lot of content. And and so that was sort of the vision behind. We'll start with the playbook. The playbook is great and it's a primer, but it, like any primer, you know, you quickly have more questions than you have answers because it doesn't have the space to cover everything. And so a companion to the playbook was really building out, and I have a set of workshops and training, much like sort of SAFE also has training and workshops that support the use of agile and enterprise environments. And, and that can help really sort of teams, whether they're just starting out and they're trying to help structure their first project. We have a quick start for that. Um, or if you're, you know, this might be your fifth or your 10th project and you're looking for repeatable methodologies and practices, there's you know, support on that. And then finally, at some level of maturity, you, you reach a point where you realize this is an enterprise-wide need. We're going to set up a center of excellence. Again, I have additional sort of training content and workshops to help with that. So we try to sort of make the appropriate level of, of enablement support for enterprise use of no code, you know, at whatever point in that maturity you are. Um, and that's really in, in using sort of, again, scaled Agile is a bit of a metaphor because I think it it's what really tipped sort of Agile over the line, so to speak, and really made it trusted and, and adopted by enterprises um, in, in a large way. So Rob, on that on that front, back to the, the world of forest there, you know, as a vendor, we get to see our specific customers and we always gravitate towards the ones that are the, the warm, fuzzy, good time stories, right? Um, and so I've seen, say, my time at Nintex, QuickBase, people with COEs. But from a Forrester perspective, when you're out there looking at the breadth customer base who may have one or many of these vendor tools, right, that's a very real thing. Do you have any good examples of, you know, and you don't need to name names, obviously, on this one, but like what, what it looked like to have a large company that's, that's gone all in. We have a thing called a center of excellence or whatever other name there is. Who's involved in that? What scale it operates at? Are they building one app, 10 apps, 100, 1,000 apps? Like what did you see out there on that front? You know, I wish I had a lot of examples. We have, we had a few examples. We wrote case studies about them, but I think, you know, I think, you know, the, the conversation you and I have had, Ryan, the conversation that, you know, John Reimer uh, has had with us is that we think there is this massive opportunity and we think it's going to be a little bit tricky to execute on. And we think we have to get there per my earlier statement. I think, I think ultimately we all, most, almost all organizations are going to have business developer programs that, you know, application development is going to be as common to us as, as email, as, you know, using spreadsheets, as using word processors, but it's hard to get there, right? How do you, how do you think about it in terms of change management to get people on board um, and, and developing these applications and, and understanding that it's going to be part of their job? How do you have governance programs in place that says, you know, my, my, my data access is is secure. It's governed. Nothing is touching anything that, that shouldn't 
be touched? How do we go after design principles, right? We're going to talk about this, these things in future episodes. How do we make sure that the applications are usable, that, you know, that there is a, that there is a, a, a process for bringing them in and saying, no, you can't have an application that looks like that. That doesn't meet our design standards or doesn't meet our, our application development standards. There's a, there is an awful lot to think about. The number of organizations that I ran into that were really mature in their thinking, I mean, it was like hen's teeth. They, they're not out there, but I think we have to get there. And I think the re that's the reason why, you know, an old retired guy came out. And that's a reason why we, you know, you and Burley and I have talked. And which which one's that? These years and <laughs> Reimer wants to be a part of this because yeah. it needs to happen. And we don't, we're, we're, and we know it can happen, but it's not happening at the speed it should. Yeah. There's, a, there's an interesting challenge there for, for a vendor landscape, for anyone out there who's listening, right? Um, so I know some folks, and we're going to try to get some of those folks on the call, but for the, for the vendors out there, like reach out, or if you're one of the people, if you're out there and you've built a low-code center of excellence, reach out because we'd love to get you on the show and talk about what that journey looked like, right? Where did it start? How's it gone? Where is it today? What were the lessons learned, the mistakes made? It'd be a fantastic discussion. Oh, I, I think there are close on a better there note. Is, Early final thoughts? <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I, I agree that I think it will happen. I, I think, you know, once the, you know, sort of the horse, you know, leaves the barn, right, it's yeah. impossible to get them back. And, and I think I think there's so much excitement and energy by the business that they will pursue business development programs. And you, that's a good thing, right? You, you don't want to squash it. I mean, there may be a knee-jerk reaction by some to like, oh, no, you have to you know, prevent it. I think that's entirely the wrong thing to do because you do want them to develop and want them to have innovation, but you do want it done in the right way that doesn't expose, you know, security risks or that doesn't, you know, create a, a real manageable nightmare. So I think it will happen. I think, I think it will take some time again to figure out the right, you know, governance scalability up and down that really helps support that, but protects you at the same time. Absolutely. So Burley, Absolutely. Two, two questions to, to wrap things up. Last ones. Uh, <laughs> first one's going to be, you know, where do people find you? Where do they find the, yep. the book? Uh, and the second question, what prediction for low code in 2024? Here we are at the start of the new year. Ah, those are great questions. Well, how to reach me is the easy one. I have uh, my my boutique consulting business is Tachyon Solutions. So you can go to tachyonsolutions.com and you can reach me there. Just drop me a message or an email. Um, and it has information about, about the book, um, both about sort of how to buy it, which is on Amazon, but you can also get training and workshops, et cetera. I think in terms of predictions, you know, for the new year, I think, you know, we, we've talked a little bit, but not a lot about sort of the impact of AI on sort of low code, right? And, and I think that's inevitable given sort of how much buzz and, you know, energy and hype has been circling around Gen AI over the past 12 months plus. But I, but I think you'll continue to see a lot of people experimenting and trying to apply Gen AI to simplify even further low-code and no-code development. I think right now there's a lot of copycats, in my opinion, a lot of vendors doing very sort of you know thin sort of veneer uh, applications. But it, inevitably, I do believe that the use of AI, Gen AI in particular, can, can have some pretty fundamental um, impacts to the way people build applications. We're seeing that already in traditional development. I I'm sure it will be as well to, to no code and to low code. Okay, so let, let me awesome. close out with a question then, Burley. Will, will you join us again <laughs> to talk about the impact of Gen AI Absolutely. on a future podcast? Oh, fantastic. Absolutely. All yes. right. Sign me well, up. Well, 
I, I think we've wrapped up another one. Um, number two. Awesome. Number two. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Burley. Um, it's a, always a pleasure to talk My to pleasure. you, particularly when we can magnify the conversation out to an audience. Um, Ryan, as always. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. Have a great Thanks, day. Everyone. Two thumbs up. Thank you.